Hi, and thanks for tuning in to Lady Justice, Women of the Court, a podcast featuring four sitting women state Supreme Court justices discussing the judicial branch of government and their experiences on their state's highest court. On this episode, when a party loses in court, they have the right to appeal the ruling and ask a higher court, known as an appellate court, to review the case. But does the case go directly to the state Supreme Court or an intermediary appellate court? In which cases does the state Supreme Court have to hear, also known as mandatory jurisdiction? In which cases does it choose to review, also known as discretionary jurisdiction? The women provide a behind-the-scenes look at the process. Chief Justice Bridget McCormick of Michigan leads the discussion. Welcome, everyone, to another episode of Lady Justice. I am Bridget McCormick, Chief Justice of the Michigan Supreme Court, and I am delighted to be joined again by my friends, Justice Rhonda Wood from the Arkansas Supreme Court, Justice Beth Walker from the West Virginia Supreme Court, and Justice Eva Guzman from the Texas Supreme Court. I missed you guys. Glad to, glad to be together with you again this morning. Today's episode we're calling State Supreme Court Practice 101. And in it, we're gonna be discussing the way our different appellate court systems work in our different states, including the behind the scenes processes that people um, always wonder about. Okay, maybe not people, but at least appellate lawyers wonder about. So my first question is about how each of our appellate court systems is structured. And I mean by that, is there an intermediate appellate court in your state? And if so, what is its role in the appellate process? Um, are there any cases in your court uh, that, that your court must automatically hear? And um, about how many petitions or applications, um, whatever you call them, does your court get each year? What is the kind of volume of your work? Um, and I'm gonna start with Michigan. Um, Michigan does have an intermediate appellate court uh, that court has 28 judges, and they sit in random panels of three, and they hear, obviously, all criminal appeals and many civil appeals, um, but there are some civil cases that have to be appealed to them by leave. Um, and then our court, the Supreme Court, has no mandatory jurisdiction whatsoever. We have a wholly discretionary docket, um, and each year we get about... 2,000 applications, about 2,000 requests uh, for, for us to hear cases where parties were not satisfied with whatever the result was from the, uh, from the Court of Appeals, the intermediate appellate court. So that's our sort of basic structure. Um, Justice Wood, what, what's it like in Arkansas? So we are a little jealous of Michigan. <laughs> so we have an um, intermediate Court of Appeals and there are 12 judges on that. They sit in panels of four as well, um, four, four panels of three, I should say. Um, they hear sort of anything that is not part of our mandatory jurisdiction. And then they also hear all appeals from the Workers' Comp Commission, the Public Service Commission, and the unemployment um, sort of appeals um, from that office. Um, our court has a 90% of our workload comes from mandatory jurisdiction cases at the Arkansas Supreme Court. So there's very, we have to be very selective about what we would take on a petition for review um, because of that. Um, and that most of it is constitutionally based. So it's not as if we could sort of alter our jurisdiction of our court, um, if that makes sense. Um, and so we, 
only received because of that, um, probably, I think that when I looked at it, um, about 150, 200 petitions for review from the Court of Appeals a year. Um, but that's because, you know, the bulk of our work is mandatory jurisdiction. That's interesting and really different. Um, Justice Walker, tell us about West Virginia. We, all right, well, good morning, everyone. It's good to uh, talk to everyone again. Um, this has been a lot of fun to get this podcast up and running. And let me start by saying uh, the cool thing, as we talked about in our Constitutions episode, is that each court system is designed you know, specifically for our individual states. And just to give our listeners a sense of perspective, because it kind of plays into uh, our different court systems, obviously each of our states have uh, a different number of people that we serve. Um, Texas, of course, uh, Eva's gonna talk in a minute, but Texas is big with almost 30 million folks who live in Texas. And Michigan is also huge by at least West Virginia standards with about 10 million population. And then Arkansas, uh, the population is about 3 million, according to my uh, extensive Google research. Um, meanwhile, West Virginia is 1.7 million people. So uh, West Virginia would fit in some of your cities, but nonetheless, we still have to have a court system that's just as um, robust in many ways as all of you, because we have the same issues. Uh, even though we have a few fewer people. So that's probably the reason that we don't have an intermediate court of appeals. We have uh, our trial courts, our family courts, which are also sort of the trial level. Uh, and then we have the Supreme Court of Appeals. So there's nothing uh, in the middle. Our constitution is very clear that if the legislature chooses to create an intermediate court, it is the legislature's determination. And there have been efforts over the years regularly to create an intermediate court. We're fine with that. You know, we will administer whatever court system our legislature uh, deems to be appropriate. Um, but as it is, we hear everything. And so um, our constitution gives us original jurisdiction over writs and habeas and those kinds of matters. All the civil and criminal jurisdiction is actually left to the legislature, but as a practical matter, um, we hear the appeals from all of our courts in the entire state, as well as our administrative agencies. And so looking at 2019, which is our most recent numbers, we hear uh, we had about 1,100 appeals filed. Now we'll, we deal with them in different ways, and I think we're going to talk about the process in a little bit, uh, but that's, that's the West Virginia court system. Interesting. Um, tell us about Texas, Justice Guzman. Well, Texas is a big state, as uh, Beth mentioned, and our our judicial system is is complicated. We um, uniquely have two high courts: the Supreme Court and the Court of Criminal Appeals. The Supreme Court has civil and juvenile jurisdiction. The Court of Criminal Appeals has criminal jurisdiction. Each court has nine judges. Um, and I think there's only one other state in the country that has a, a similar high court structure that may be Oklahoma. The intermediate appellate court system in Texas is also unique. We have 14 intermediate appellate courts. The Houston Courts of Appeals, we have two <laughs> with um, overlapping jurisdiction. Uh, we have regionally, the 14 appellate courts have uh, different caseloads. And so we, um, um, have docket equalization. And what that means is um, the, the Supreme Court of Texas transfers cases between the courts of appeals to equalize their dockets. 
um, and that you know that system has benefits, but but also some detriments to to um, the litigants in each community. They don't always know which courts will end up deciding their cases. The Supreme Court's um, jurisdiction is we have um, discretionary review. Uh, we get to choose our own docket. We get about twelve hundred petitions for review a year, and end up hearing uh, somewhere. Um, over a hundred matters or so. The courts of appeals, they um, automatic right of appeal to our courts of appeals. They have criminal and civil jurisdiction. So it's a pretty um, complex structure. It's one that um, was created in the late 1800s and it's been amended or expanded periodically, but on an ad hoc basis. So. Interesting. So my next question was going to be about what rules your court has regarding jurisdiction, but we've learned a little bit about um, some of that. Um, and then what norms does your court have about those, the part of your, your docket that is discretionary? Are there, are there uh, ways that your court approaches the discretionary part of the docket um, that are either based in rule or based in tradition? Um, uh, or, or otherwise just um, um, have it. And I guess we'll start that, that one with, with you, Rhonda. Well, um, as I said, Arkansas has such a mandatory jurisdiction and um, to kind of explain a little bit, we get all the criminal cases if the sentence was death or life in prison. And so any other sentence would go to the court of appeals. Um, we also, anytime that someone challenges a statute is unconstitutional, then we would have that. Um, all election matters, all writs, um, all interlocutory appeals um, come to us as well. Um, and so um, discovery disputes um, and then all election matters. And that actually is a large part of our doctrine. We have a pretty active election <laughs> um, challenge process in Arkansas. Um, so again, what happens with the petitions for review, they have to file those within 18 days of a court of appeals decision. Um, and so we very rarely take one with sort of jumping the court of appeals where they don't hear it. Um, so they will hear it within 18 days, they file it to us. Um, all of those come to us on the first of every month. Um, and then we decide which ones we'll take by the 15th of the month. So the litigants get an answer really quick um, that they know either their case was final or that the court's gonna take it. Um, and if so, then we give them a chance to sort of rebrief um, before us. Um, we don't, so what we do because our docket's mandatory so large, we're very selective. We don't take it just because we may think the intermediate court got it wrong. And um, so we are very careful. It's more of, is there uh, now different panels of the Court of Appeals that may have ruled differently that we need to settle that? Um, have they, you know, sort of gone against our precedent? Have they misinterpreted our precedent? That's happened sometimes. We've come down with a case a year before and they now have misinterpreted what we meant um, that we need to sort of clear that up or they've misinterpreted a rule change. Um, sort of a rule of service or something. So we're very selective, but there are times where we're like, we would have ruled differently on that case, um, but that's not a reason to take it. Um, maybe, I don't know, if, I don't know if this is a good question for you about West Virginia, since you don't have an intermediate appellate court, but tell, but 
Beth, what, what, what about West Virginia? Are there norms? Are there processes? Are there rules about how you think about what you decide? Um, absolutely, and because we are uh, the only intermediate or the only appellate court in West Virginia, um, we obviously have a pretty high volume. Uh, but we nonetheless want to try to be selective and you know use our efforts where they're you know best applied, I guess. So we when when cases to overly simplify a little bit, when cases come in, whether they're coming in on a petition for appeal or an original jurisdiction, a petition for a writ. Um, we put them into one of two tracks. Uh, the first track is it's going to head to oral argument, uh, which means that we're going to hear it during our terms of court, which run January to June. And then from September to November, we don't sit all year. We just sit during those months. Um, or the other track is it's headed to a, a slightly more summary disposition, which means we call them memorandum decisions. Uh, we are still deciding it as a court. Uh, but they have not gone to uh, the through the process of oral arguments. So that's kind of, you know, talking about discretion and what warrants um, consideration in an oral argument. We try to make the best decision with the first time. Most cases, we look at them twice. We look at them to decide which of these two tracks they're going to take. And then we look at them, either their final memorandum decision or we take them up in oral argument. Sometimes the case goes back to having a memorandum decision, even though we put it on the oral argument docket. Uh, so these aren't hard and fast lines, but what we're trying to do, as I'm, as I know all of you try to do too, is you know narrow down the cases that warrant our attention. You know we all we're very careful about it and make sure that we're deciding the cases that that are important, uh, not just from a public policy standpoint, but important to uh, folks who are accused of crimes, folks in the abuse and neglect system. Uh, all of that. So that's a little bit about West Virginia. Cool. Um, how about Texas, Eva? All right. So the, as I mentioned, the Texas court has nine justices. All of our voting is electronic now. The process begins with the petition for review, gets filed in the clerk's office, and they send them up um, electronically. Um, in the beginning, we would all have these huge boxes with purple folders and these pink voting sheets. And that's when I got to the court in 09. And now it's, it's really pretty simple. Our votes are due on um, Thursdays by 10 a.m. And uh, we have the ability to sort of get an idea of how others have voted, assuming they voted before us. And so you can see um, in real time everything that um, is going on. Um, the um, if one judge votes to do anything but deny, the case gets brought to conference. So you get a petition, you get a number of options, discuss, deny, uh, vote for a study memo. So if only one judge takes it off what we call the proverbial conveyor belt, then it gets brought to conference. At conference, we um, discuss the docket. Um, mostly we go around the table in order of seniority. If a particular judge is the only judge that's voted to discuss, and then that judge sort of becomes the advocate for, if you will, for, for that petition um, and the discussion begins. If you can get um, at least two other justices to agree with you that the, um, the case merits further study, then it takes three justices to order from the parties um, briefing 
And um, that doesn't mean we'll grant the petition. What that means is we will assign to our law clerks a what we internally call a study memo. It's approximately 10 pages, though we limit the by word count now, um, but law clerks always get creative on <laughs> how to sneak in a little bit more. But um, then it, we get that study memo that's brought back to the conference, and um, then we talk about it again um, and decide whether to um, grant or, or deny review. Um, it's it's um, an interesting process. All of our opinions are assigned randomly. We literally draw a number from a blue card, and so that um, has a lot of benefits. Um, you never know exactly what you're going to draw, and there aren't any, isn't anyone pulling, um, you know, toward writing a certain case, um, obviously. After argument, if you uh, don't um, carry the day with your proposed outcome, then someone else can take over the opinion. But that's in a nutshell a little bit about how we um, process cases. So in Michigan, um, just to just to step back for one second, um, because we have fully discretionary jurisdiction, we do have a court rule that governs. Um, the kinds of cases the court should be taking on that discretionary docket. And they're kind of what you'd expect, you know, cases that have statewide implication, cases interpreting a new statute, cases that have a constitutional um, dimension, cases where there's some um, disruption in the fabric of the law. Um, you know, if there are different panels of the Intermediate Court of Appeals who have decided a question differently, it might be something that the court uh, the Michigan Supreme Court should take and, and clarify. Um, but like, like Rhonda in Arkansas, we, we're, we are pretty committed to the idea that we're not taking cases just because the Court of Appeals might have decided it uh, not the way we would have. Um, uh, that, that is something we don't do. We, we, we don't correct errors. Um, but Eva's discussion of how the court works is actually um, a really interesting topic. And I want to hear from my friends uh, about about whether it's similar in, in Arkansas and in West Virginia. Um, I'll say in Michigan, and I think I wanna start this part of the discussion um, to follow up on, on Eva's information, just about how you, you work with your colleagues. How, do, how does the court kind of work together in reviewing cases, applications, um, uh, talking about cases after they've been argued and assigning opinions. Um, that's interesting that Texas is wholly uh, by, by, uh, by chance. You don't, you know, nobody sort of like picks their favorite opinion and writes it. Um, that's sort of how we do it, although we end up doing some horse trading in Michigan. Um, but let me hear a little bit about um, West Virginia first. How do you work uh, with, your, with your colleagues, um, Beth, and how do you guys um, communicate, coordinate, and you know, make your decisions together. Because on multi-member courts, we make basically every decision by committee one way or another. Absolutely, and it, it's just so interesting how different uh, the different states are. Um, talking about how we, you know, I, I talked about how we have cases kind of on two tracks. We make that initial decision in an in-person conference. Now, that conference has occasionally been by Zoom this year. Uh, but we haven't quite gone to electronic voting, although since I'm paperless, I'm intrigued by Texas, Texas's electronic voting, I have to say. But uh, we make those decisions, uh, the five of us sitting, and there are five on our Supreme Court, I don't think I mentioned that, um, sitting in a conference room. 
And the interesting thing about the West Virginia Supreme Court, uh, well, let me step back and say one of my um, goals I set when I was elected that I would visit every state Supreme Court in the country. Uh, so I, I have a 12 year term, so I had to do about five a year. And unfortunately, this COVID thing has completely blown up the plan. So I don't know what, but I have been to Michigan and I have been to Texas. Um, but the way that, but I, I mentioned that because physically in our building at the Capitol, the five of us sit, our, our individual offices are in the same hallway. Uh, we, you know, walk out of our office. I walk out of my office. Justice Hutchison is right across the hall and the other three justices are right down the hall. And so we interact informally all the time. Now, I know that other courts are set up where the justices kind of have a, an area where they sit with their law clerks and their staff attorneys or and assistants and all of that. And that seems to me to be really productive um, from a day-to-day office administration standpoint. But what I love about West Virginia is that we um, interact a lot together. Um, we uh, run into each other, we work you know, in person a lot. Um, so it's kind of, I guess it's like West Virginia, we're a small place, we kind of all know each other. So uh, that's how our court works as well. And talking about um, the assignment process, just to, to wrap up a little bit about West Virginia process and compare to Texas. Um, our chief justice who rotates every year, uh, is in charge of assigning the cases to a justice before the oral argument on the cases on the argument docket. So like Texas, um, you know, it's your case. Uh, it's not randomly assigned, although we have a super secret method of doing it. It's semi-random. Um, but it, it is then your job to be kind of the expert on that case in the argument uh, everybody looks at all the cases, of course, but, um, you know, as somebody watching our court could probably choose usually who the justices assigned to the case, because sometimes they ask more questions or seem more familiar with the record. Uh, but we then, of course, it can switch as it does in Texas. Uh, you go into after the argument, decide the case in decision conference. And if you fall out of the majority, then it goes to somebody else, but uh, that's how we, the chief justice actually is in charge of running the sort of algorithm uh, for who, for who is assigned, assigned the case. That's interesting. So what, but is there any, is there a conference sort of before oral arguments so that you have a sense that you might be in the majority on, on the, on the opinion that you're assigned to, or is it just random? And what if- It is random. And so uh, now you might, we might talk to one another again informally, there's no formal conference. In fact, we actually try not to, um, and we moved our conference. We used to try to conference right after arguments, um, you know, right in, you know, the end of the day, whether we have five or eight or however many, and just get together and, and vote. But then we realized that sometimes you need to think a little bit about what you've heard and what other justices questions maybe have been. And so now we do our decision conference a couple of days later uh, while the case is still fresh, but, uh, but we don't pre-conference. Bridget, this is Eva. I'll, I'll just mention, because I think that's really interesting what Beth said. So for us, it takes four votes to grant the case, but there may have been, you know, three people who were adamant about not granting the case. So the last time we would have thought about the case would have been at that conference. So going into oral argument, um, you kind of have an idea about what issues you should ask about to sort of address the concerns of maybe the three 
that, that didn't want a grant or, you know, the two that were on the fence. So it's, it's sort of interesting um, to have that uh, vote to grant as providing the backdrop for for the discussions that are. Yeah, it, it, I don't know in your courts, but the vote to grant in Michigan, um, it usually comes a, a number of months before we actually end up hearing the argument. So, um, and we've made a lot of decisions in, in, in that in those intervening months. Um, and so I, I often have to go back and refresh my own recollection about what did I think about this case when we voted to grant? You know, what were my, and I, my clerks keep good track of all that and what did everybody else think? Um, Rhonda, how do you guys work, work in Arkansas along these lines? Yeah, so this is really interesting. Um, so Arkansas, um, we, because of our, again, our jurisdiction being mandatory, we've sort of figured it out, um, a system in that, so we take 14 cases every two weeks um, that are submitted to the court. Um, and then we, our terms runs in the spring until we finish the docket. Basically we finish all the, man, all the cases that we've mandatory and the petitions for review. So our spring docket could end at the end of May or one year it went to mid July. Um, but we sort of, that usually works itself out. And so a computer randomly assigns um, every, every case um, who is the main justice. And that means you're the justice presenting it at conference and you're the justice writing the majority if you end up in the majority after the vote. And you find that out when you get the case, which is one month before conference and oral argument. Um, so every two weeks, you sort of have your two cases that you'll be presenting and probably writing. Um, the computer already man assigns the backup and sort of who's next in line all the way down through the next seven. Um, and then that is the order of dissenting too. So um, the first person in line is the first person that has the opportunity to write for the dissent. Um, of course, everybody can write their own dissent if they choose. Um, so you, so we know that um, going into it. Um, so you kind of know, um, in a sense, um, also if, if I see that I'm number two on a case and I know how number one approaches these particular cases and I know number one is going to struggle on this issue and usually dissents from the majority, then I know in that particular week, I may be writing three majorities. I, I'm sort of anticipating that going in um, because our court, you know, doesn't have, a, you know, a, there's a lot of split decisions. <laughs> or I may know that I'm third out and there's, you know, maybe a good chance that I may end up drawing that case uh, because I'm third in line to write the majority. Um, but so, yeah, it's, um, we sort of know or I know I'm the majority going in, but I'm not, I'm gonna probably end up dissenting <laughs> from day one. But it, you know, it's my chance to try to pull because I'm the presenting judge um, of that. Um, the other quirky thing about Arkansas that may surprise you guys, um, we try to, our goal is we circulate the majority opinion 10 days after conference um, is our target date. When I joined the court, the target date was three days, was the Monday after the Thursday conference. And we were conferencing then every week, Thursday instead of every other Thursday. And it was crazy. Um, now we've switched to every other week in a 10 day target. Um, so our average turnaround is like 21 days for an opinion to come down. 
Um, the dissent only has as long as the majority took to write to, to get their dissent out. Um, so it's a very quick process in Arkansas. Um, and I think it's just because we do have a large caseload because of the large mandatory jurisdiction and we just have to, we don't do any memorandum of opinions. And so we just have to keep them moving or, or we would just get bogged down. That's really interesting, but let me ask a follow-up. So what if somebody doesn't get it out in 10 days? Like, how do you enforce the, I mean, I, I, it, it, it must be just a norm and everybody just plays by the rules or what it's, happens? So it's a target date. Um, so there's some opinions that you get out sooner and there's some that are really complex cases that you take longer. Um, and yeah. that's, you know, acceptable. We have a 60 day rule um, that if, you have to have the opinion out in 60 days. The whole case has to come down in 60 days or you have to write an explanation as to why. Um, that's an administrative order for all appellate courts. Um, so we, you know, the whole opinion has to be down in 60 days um, or you have to write explanation as to why um, the, the assigned justice. Um, but so it's a target, but we hit it, you know, most of the time. Um, but, you know, there's times of, you know, it's more complicated or a justice is ill or something, you know, comes up. Um, there's no sort of shaming if you don't get it done. Um, but um, it's just, we've gotten, that's the system and we're used to it. That's really interesting. I, so in, in Michigan, because we have this fully discretionary docket, we spend a lot of time deciding what to decide, as you might imagine. Um, and everybody reviews every application individually, each justice does in their chambers. And, and we all have our own processes for how we do that. And I'll talk about that. We'll talk about that a, bit, a little bit later. I wanna ask everybody about the way you work with your clerks. Um, but if, if, if any one of us um, wants to talk about the case, it moves to a conference agenda and we conference every Wednesday, except if it's an oral argument week, in which case we don't. Um, so on Wednesdays, we're mostly talking about what cases we should hear at oral argument. We have a conference agenda and, and that's the main discussion on that. We do have lots of um, informal conversations in between conferences. So just like it sounds like many of you do, um, either, well, in the old days when we used to work in the office or um, on the phone, um, we talked to each other a lot about what we're thinking about a particular case or if anybody has an idea about a part of it that we find especially challenging. Um, and, um, and then ultimately at, that, at those Wednesday conferences, um, we vote. Um, it, the, the vote usually is is just the end of the process of many conversations, some you know, at that conference table and some informal on the phone and in person. Um, and, and that's when we, that's when we decide. Our, our opinions um, get assigned after oral arguments. So unlike um, a couple of your courts, we don't have anybody assigned ahead of time to be writing the opinion. And um, I think it's because we often go in having no idea where people will be um, by the time we're done with oral argument. And so it makes sense to kind of see who's in the majority and who's not. Um, we have a number of cases where we're not unanimous, although I think we're, we're unanimous more than we're not. Um, but we don't make that as assumption up front. And we, um, we, we, we conference right after oral argument each day after. And we take sort of a preliminary vote to see where people are and see who's in the putative majority and therefore eligible to write a particular opinion. 
Um, and then at the end of the entire case call, which for us is normally two days, sometimes maybe three, um, we then uh, assign the opinions out. And there's some secret process that involves like poker chips and a cardboard box that seems to be covered in a brown paper bag and the clerk pulls out the poker chip and it has a number on it. And that number corresponds somehow to some opinion and whoever's next up, that's what they're assigned. And I swear to God, none of us understand it, literally. We think the clerk could be punking us and maybe the clerk's just assigning these opinions and pretending like there's a random process. I will say we sometimes um, then, depending on what we've been assigned to write, we'll trade, you know, if there's a, if I got assigned a case that I know one of my colleagues had done a ton of work on and was really eager to write it, um, I'm very happy to trade opinions and take the one that he or she got. Um, and, and we do that pretty pretty regularly, but, um, but allegedly they're assigned randomly, although again, who knows. Um, we then conference once the majority opinion circulates to see if it's still a majority opinion. And like all of your courts, I'm sure it happens that Sometimes it's not. Um, sometimes even after I write an opinion, I'm not sure I, 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 I believe it anymore. You know, so sometimes I've you know, found myself trying to write a majority opinion and, and found a big hole in it that I'm not sure what to do with. And I'll bring it back to conference and say, uh-oh, you know, I now have a concern about what I thought was uh, the way the majority opinion would write. Does anybody have any ideas about this? And the whole opinion can change or um, I just have to give it up to somebody else who can write a majority opinion if I no longer think I can. So we continue to conference our opinion cases um, during those Wednesday conferences as well. So some cases, especially ones where there's more than one opinion, may have been discussed at our conference table 20 times, you know, a couple of times leading up to oral argument, right after oral argument, and then during the opinion process um, a number of times. Um, it's pretty interesting how how different all of our all of our systems are. Um, I want to I want to not quite turn to how you each work with your clerks through all of that, but I'm very interested in that. But first, I want to hear everything we've just heard about was sort of how your courts have or have functioned traditionally. A lot has changed since late March in the way our courts function. At least for at least I think they they have, as far as I can tell, following following the national uh, centers information. Um, tell me how things have been different um, in Texas, Eva, since, um, since COVID-19. Well, COVID-19 has definitely um, changed the way um, courts approach their dockets. For the Supreme Court, uh, the, we meet virtually now. Our conferences are via Zoom. Um, in the beginning, our law clerks were not able to participate in the conferences via Zoom because of security concerns and, and other things. We've since resolved that uh, for for this class of law clerks, so so that's a, a benefit. Um, it changes the dynamic; it, it really does. And I'm looking forward to getting back into the room um, where we're sitting across the table from from each other and discussing these cases. Nonetheless, the, the discussions um, continue to be engaging, and, and you know, we continue to agree or disagree. And some cases, you know, can take 45 minutes to discuss, and that's via Zoom, and that's exhausting <laughs> to you know stare at the computer screen on one case for 45 minutes but um we've done it we're we're uh, powering through it as are our courts now i don't know 
what the impact will ultimately be on our caseload because trial courts are not trying cases um, in the numbers that they were. So at some point, I think you're going to see an impact on caseload, but in terms of um, the, the conferences, um, we're doing the best that we can, and I don't think we've lost anything in terms of um, the ability to uh, deliberate uh, thoughtfully about the, the cases on our docket, even though we're doing it via Zoom. Um, we've done our conferences by Zoom as well since, largely since um, late March, um, and that's actually worked out quite well. And we've also been hearing oral arguments only by Zoom, but we keep hoping we can get back to figuring out a way to hear them in the courtroom safely. Uh, I think everybody prefers the courtroom, although I will say that I think for what we do as appellate courts, Zoom turns out to be a very serviceable um, substitute. It's, it's, um, I think it must be much harder for trial judges who are trying to uh, figure out how to take evidence and have witnesses testify. And um, it's much, much more complicated for them than it is for appellate courts. Um, but even so, we're still, we're still kind of hoping to get back in person as soon as possible. I guess everybody's kind of hoping that for every part of our lives, but certainly for this part, we are hoping. For conferences, it's actually turned out to be, I think, uh, a an innovation that I bet we will use even when this pandemic is finally behind us because um, Michigan's a big state and my colleagues live uh, in, in different parts of it um, or sometimes somebody is traveling for some you know, court business um, or otherwise and the Zoom option does give us the opportunity to keep uh, being conferencing our cases and talking to one another face to face, which I do think is kind of important. Um, in some of these decisions that we're making. Um, so I predict we will continue to use the platform in some of what we do um, going forward. Hopefully not everything like we are now. Um, how about Arkansas, Rhonda? Yeah, so um, a lot of what we did didn't change in the sense that we already voted electronically and recorded all of our votes electronically. And we have electronic filing of briefs and records in Arkansas. Um, so definitely oral argument by Zoom. Um, we'll be doing that through the end of the year is different. Um, I miss, you know, being able to walk down the hall and visit with my colleagues. Um, so even, you know, if I'm in the building, you know, it's rare that, one, you know, multiple of us are in there, but even if so, we're all masks and, you know, it's just not the same. Um, I will say that I think that um, we will probably use like you, use Zoom in some format for conferencing because our justices are spread out all over the state and live, you know, um, you know, three and a half, four hours away, some of them from the court. So I think that that will be useful still. Um, I will also add that um, it was it was sort of interesting. We did a conference um, a couple weeks ago and we had a statutory interpretation issue and um, and I was presenting and so I was able to sort of color code the statute like ahead of time and share the screen and show, like walk through and I had it like in red and blue and purple how it like transitioned and I shared it on the screen as I you know sort of presented my version of the how to interpret the statute and suddenly everyone was like wow this was kind of you know that we didn't do this in conference you know you just sort of read the statute <laughs> to everyone and tried to explain it but to be able to visually show it was was sort of handy 
Um, so in that respect, maybe it improved conference, but I'm, I'm ready to get back to a lot more in person. Um, so hopefully that'll happen, hopefully in Arkansas, maybe after the you know end of the year, we'll see. That is a cool example of like something you, you, you can do um, given this new platform that I guess you could have done it in person, but we didn't used to. So that's very cool. How about West Virginia? Um, what, are you, what are you all doing with COVID-19, Beth? Well, of course, uh, like all of you, um, in the spring, you know, we had to scramble and figure out what to do. And we did have oral arguments uh, using, we used the WebEx platform, you know, same, similar, similar thing. But once we came down to our fall term that started on September 1st, um, we decided to try to go live. Um, we put little plexiglass barriers between us on the bench because someone got a yardstick out and figured out that we don't actually sit six feet apart. Um, so we did that and of course, and we've um, rearranged our docket so that lawyers aren't waiting in the courtroom for their case to come up. We assign a time to each argument, which we had never done before. You just had to show up and, you know, if you weren't there when your case started, um, the cases can vary in length. Uh, you know, you, you did that at your own risk. So we love that new innovation. We love the docket. We love having cases scheduled. Um, and so that has been a COVID innovation, even though that we're back to being live that we will absolutely keep. I think the lawyers like it. Um, it limits the number of people in the courtroom. Uh, we have microphone covers for the lawyers uh, when they're arguing. So we issue them each a little microphone cover that they can use uh, while they're arguing. We permit the lawyers to argue in their masks if they prefer. Uh, we ask them to keep their masks on at council table. And then when they stand up to argue or stand back up to do a rebuttal, uh, they can take their mask off or they can leave it on. Um, so, so far, so good. Now we do have one justice who's decided for health reasons not to participate live. And so fortunately, like I think all of you, our oral arguments go out live on YouTube. So she is able to, while she can't ask questions, she is able to see everything that we see and hear everything we hear uh, at the same time. And so that's been a good option um, even, you know, she just didn't want to come. Now she did uh, decide to join us last week. Uh, so I think she missed us uh, and wanted to come in in person, but we were all really careful as we've been uh, all along. So we've all found kind of different solutions. So the next topic I wanna to ask about, and it might be the last one because time flies when you're having fun and I'm watching the clock. Um, but this is this is one that uh, I, I, I think is uh, um, probably pretty interesting to some of our listeners. How many clerks do each of you have? Um, are they term clerks or permanent clerks? How do you personally work with them? Like what's your process for working with your clerks? What do they take the lead on? What do you take the lead on? Um, and what are your goals for them during their clerkships? How do you, how do you think about um, uh, what you want them to accomplish? Um, and I'll start with you, Rhonda. What do you tell me about your clerks? So in Arkansas, we have two law clerks per justice. And I typically um, have had one that is permanent and one that rotates. Um, that is rare. Um, until last year, all my colleagues had all permanent clerks. Um, so I was sort of the, um, the odd person out um, to rotate anyone. Um, and um, that's worked well for me. Um, my clerks, it's sort of like a little family unit. 
um, were very close. Um, and um, they typically, you know, write up, you know, what you think about, they write up the memos on the cases. Um, and I like to sort of reach my own decision before I see what they have reached their decision on. So we kind of reach them independently. And then we do what um, I guess, you know, I'm used to doctors and working in healthcare that we do a round table. Um, and so um, once a week, they come into my office and my AA administrative assistant as well, because um, I like to get a sort of an average person, non-lawyers opinion as well. And we sit and we go through every case on the sort of docket and we, they present their cases that are assigned to them. They've split them up and they'll present it. And then I will ask them questions. I may tell them that I was looking at it differently um, and we will go through it. And it's interesting. Sometimes my administrative assistant will be like, well, that's crazy, you know? <laughs> um, and it's interesting to hear her perspective. Um, but anyway, we will go through it and then they'll all say, you know, go back and look at this more. I want more research on this. Sometimes the other clerk will say, hey, I think that we had a, I looked at a case, you know, and have something to interplay on the other clerk that the other clerk may not realize, you know, someone worked on before. So we kind of go back and forth and back and forth. And then if it's an opinion we're drafting, then we just sort of discuss whether I'm going to take the lead on the draft or they will. Um, and then we just, you know, of course, from there, do a lot of editing <laughs> in the writing process. Uh, how about in West Virginia, Beth, or in your chambers, I guess? What's your yes, um, so each of our justices actually have four, we call them staff attorneys, but they function as uh, law clerks for folks who may be non-lawyers listening. When we talk about law clerks, you might think of someone, you know, with little files and clerks. Uh, when we talk about law clerks, we're actually talking about lawyers. Um, so these are people who have, um, you know, gone to law school, maybe practice law, maybe not. When I arrived at court, like Rhonda, I was a bit of a rule breaker, and I decided that one of my four clerks should be a rotating clerk. Uh, sometimes we call that a term clerk. Um, I'm actually advertising for one right now, so it's not too late. If you hear this podcast, uh, we are scheduling interviews for our uh, 21 20 to, through 23 law clerk. We have two-year terms for our term clerks in my office. So I'm still the only one that uses a term clerk of our five justices. Um, it, it's a, it's a, I guess a classic balancing between, you know, when you have a seasoned permanent quote, permanent clerk, there's much less training and, uh, all of that, that takes place. I think it's really fun to bring in a, a recent grad. I try to make it a very recent law graduate, uh, so that they can get a, an idea of how our court works as part of their sort of initiation into the practice of law. Um, so our, my current, ter current term clerk went straight from graduating to my chambers. Um, and that's been a lot of fun, but we try to meet every week. Um, we used to do it in person and, you know, a couple of my clerks have small children, schools have been in and out and all over the place. So we have been mostly doing it, uh, via zoom. Um, we have a pretty high volume. Um, each justice writes between 30 and 40 signed opinions a year. So uh, I think that probably is how we have so many uh, law clerks. And in my chambers anyway, um, the clerk takes the first cut at an opinion in most cases. 
Um, occasionally, I will find one that I'm really, really interested in uh, and write it myself. Uh, I'm an old labor and employment lawyer, so if I have, if I'm lucky enough to uh, be assigned a labor and employment case, sometimes it's just now this is so geeky, but this is it's so much fun for me that I'll just do it myself. Uh, but usually, uh, the law clerks will do some kind of draft. Uh, and then circulate it amongst themselves and then to me, and then it goes back and forth. And it's a really collaborative process. And the one thing I'm trying to uh, instill in my clerks and in everybody at the court is that the editing process is a process. Just because I'm changing a draft, just because I think something should, should be said differently, it's just we're all trying to improve our work product. And I know you all agree with this. And so sometimes it takes a few drafts to get it just right, different views. I love, Rhonda, your approach of having somebody who's not a lawyer kind of hearing where things are going. Um, so that's a little bit about my chambers. And how about you, Eva? Tell me about your clerks. Well, we have um, two term clerks and one senior staff attorney. In my chambers, um, I've taken the executive assistant position and converted it to a term clerk position. Um, given technology, I, I didn't see a, a huge need for an executive assistant. So we, we have a very collaborative chambers. We, we all help each other out. So I don't have an executive assistant. But um, the, the clerks, a, a primary duty for all of our clerks are um, working up the study memos that I mentioned. When we conference, uh, if there are three votes to request briefing, we do. It comes in and clerks write up the study memos. They're, they're writing for the court. We, um, as individual justices, do not intentionally have any input on the study memo or its recommendation. So as to keep any particular chambers from, you know, using that as a as a means of advocacy. Um, in terms of how how we do our work, we begin with an outline. So we all talk about the cases. We sit in my chambers, the senior staff lawyer, myself, the two law clerks. It's always wonderful to get that perspective from the students fresh out of law school. Um, then the senior staff attorney reminding everyone why we we you know why we've done something else. Um, in the past and can't do what we're all thinking about but but it's a fun process so we get an outline we have bench memos the opinion draft most of the time begins with that bench memo before argument obviously things change um bench memo usually presents both sides what if we wrote it this way what if we wrote it the other way you know what are the um what's the cleanest path and you know what's the path that's going to garner a majority so we think about all of those things we think about them as a group it's very collaborative and I think we we wind up with a really good product that um, withstands the scrutiny of, of all of the, the folks in our audience. And in Michigan, we have we each each justice has four clerks, and um, one is a senior clerk who's uh, a permanent clerk. Um, I use, and I think I think most of my colleagues use that person to kind of manage the the day to day of the office and the workloads. Um, and also to you know help me with mentoring uh, new clerks, and then the other three positions rotate um, as term clerks. They each serve two-year terms, so I'm always bringing in one new person in, in September, uh, who will begin a a, a two-year uh, time with me. They're they're um, generally right out of law school, although occasionally they've done some other clerkship first, um, and um, 
I'm usually hired out a, a couple of years in advance. I'm hired already through next year. So I'm, I will be hiring uh, starting in January for 2023 for my, for my incoming term clerk. Um, and like the rest of you, I think I have a similar process. They, they have sort of buckets of work they each do of all the cases that are coming into the court. They, my senior clerk divides them among the, the four of them. So everybody has a quarter of my, my caseload um, and they're responsible. They're sort of the first line of defense on those cases. Um, they write memos to me on um, the application process. Is it something we should be thinking about taking or talking about at conference? Then they write conference memos. So they will have already written a memo on the case if it was, you know, if, because they had it for the application stage, they'll write a, a, a longer memo for conference to basically um, give me a little more information about what, what we might be talking about, what my colleagues and I might be talking about. Um, and then we divide up oral arguments and obviously they, they try and stick with the cases they've had from application and um, conference, but sometimes my senior clerk has to balance out the workload. If, if, if one clerk has a lot of cases that end up on a case call, we, he, he rebalances them. Um, and like all of you, I meet with them um, always after conference. So at least once a week, I meet with them as a group to talk about what happened at conference and what next steps are gonna be happening on each case. And then I have um, other meetings with subgroups of them or sometimes just one of them. I have a, a new clerk that just started in September and he, uh, he, he, he won the, the lottery after our October case call and got, got the, got a, I got assigned the majority opinion. So he and I had um, some individual meetings to kind of talk through his outline. I'm a big believer in uh, talking through an opinion um, uh, at kind of each, stage of it, especially with a new clerk who's just still learning me and my, you know, my preferences and, and my thoughts about the legal question, as well as sometimes just the, some of the drafting questions. And so we had our first meeting about his outline, about how he thought this opinion should write. Um, and I told him that I want our next meeting, meeting to be after his crappy first draft. And I do expect a crappy first draft because it's only if you give me a crappy first draft that we can make sure we're still on the same page. Um, and there's plenty of time to push it from crappy first draft to polished um, opinion. And I hope that one of the things that clerks learn while they're um, in my chambers is um, to, be, to, be, to be good writers. So uh, they certainly do a lot of it. So hopefully I can contribute to that by, by, by some of that uh, regular one-on-one -on -one time with the clerks. So I think we already went over a little bit. Um, I wanna thank uh, all of my friends again. It is great to see each of you. Um, and thank you for listening to Lady Justice. We'll be back again with another episode before long. You've been listening to Lady Justice, Women of the Court. Visit ladyjusticepod.com to hear more episodes, find links to the show's social media, and write in a question or comment. The opinions expressed by the justices on this program are theirs alone and not necessarily those of their respective courts. Until next time.